Today's episode of Keeping It 1600 is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. Other sites have gone back to the same old tactic of showing you a lower price and then changing huge fees at checkout. But at SeatGeek, the price you see is always the price you pay. With SeatGeek, there's no guesswork. You'll know exactly how much you're paying, where you're sitting, and whether or not you're getting a good deal, all right from your phone. So drop your old site and experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be. To start using SeatGeek, download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. And guys, this is the last time you're going to hear our show on Channel 33, so please make sure to subscribe to our new podcast feed titled Keeping It 1600 on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. So that's our own feed now. Welcome to Keeping It 1600. This is John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Welcome, everyone. We are... Uh, we are back with another week. We had some uh, primary contests on Tuesday. The primary is still going, believe it or not. I forgot it was primary night, did you? Uh, yeah, I totally forgot about that as well. I mean, <laughs> I, I've had the Kentucky and Oregon primaries, you know, circled on my calendar for a year now, but so I was surprised I missed it. I, I honestly thought Kentucky already went. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they did on the Republican side, right? Maybe that's why I thought that. They did. It's also because I think we, like the rest of the world, thought this was over um, three weeks ago. So I stopped paying attention to election night. Oh, awesome. Well, um, we are going to be talking to S.E. Cup, CNN commentator, conservative commentator, and columnist very soon. But um, let's go through the week in politics uh, really quickly. So on Tuesday, uh, Hillary eked out a win in Kentucky. Uh, Bernie won Oregon. And then sort of all hell has broken loose in the Democratic Party. <laughs> or <laughs> yes. has it? Or has it? What do you well, think? Well, I, I think... Um, it feels like it has. I'm not sure it actually has. Um, you know, the the couple of things that happened here that are worth noting is um, there was a, a Democratic convention in uh, in in Vegas where the there there was a huge dispute between the Bernie supporters and the Clinton supporters and, and the state party itself. Uh, lots of chanting. There were apparently threats of violence towards the state party chair. California Senator Barbara Boxer, I believe, was actually on location and said she was feared for her safety. Um, a lot of people called Sanders to respond to, to sort of quiet this down, tell a supporter, condemn his support actions. He refused to and sort of poured more gas on the fire. Um, yeah. And then. Then Bernie Sanders had a rally in California and started chanting Bernie or bust and he did not, I don't know, I guess people wanted him to shush them or something um, yeah. and kind of let that stand. And then there was an article in today's New York Times that went online yesterday that said um, that Bernie, the Sanders campaign driven by Senator Sanders himself and his um, uh, campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, were going to push this thing through June 14th and all the way to the convention, and they were willing to quote, and this is in the headline, um, do some harm to Hillary Clinton to try to fight to the end, um, which has Democrats with the propensity for bedwetting to get very nervous very quickly. As polls are showing, I just have to take a moment for the polar coaster. This is going to be <laughs> a segment on each episode now. Um, as polls are tightening, seemingly. I mean, there was a Fox News poll yesterday that has... Uh, Trump 45, Clinton 42, um, and some of these national polls have been a little tight. I guess, I mean, 
my thing is I, I just haven't seen a poll in a little while, a couple of weeks that shows a healthy Clinton lead as healthy as it was in April, uh, either in states or nationally. Um, that combined with now, I don't, I don't know that that has, I don't know that that's completely separate from all of this Bernie stuff and sort of the damage that he's doing to her by look a couple of weeks ago he was sort of it seemed like he was going to stay in the race through june through california or dc primary which i i've said he should um but sort of focus on his positive message and and the changes that he wants to see in the party and the changes he wants to see policy wise and i thought that he would probably stop hitting hillary clinton it seemed like he would and i don't know what happened to him over the last couple of weeks but he sort of switched back to attacks that are probably as bad or as intense as we've seen the whole primary. I, I think it is alarming. And, you know, you take some of these polls. I'm, I'm alarmed. I'm going to say I'm alarmed. You're alarmed. You, 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 you will be in a constant state of alarm until this election is over. I'm and <laughs> I will also be alarmed. Like the yin and yang of this podcast is you'll be super alarmed and I'll be very alarmed and I'll try to calm you down. I which go is ba- basically how we, how we did the last eight years of our life. I just um, want everyone to know I go back and forth like many times a day because I, like intellectually I tell myself and have told myself for a couple months now, it's going to get close. People are going to freak out. You can't worry about it. It's fine. The fundamentals are strong in the words of John McCain. Um, <laughs> and then, but it's hard when you see the, the Bernie stuff plus the tightening polls, you think, okay, we, we got to get our shit together here. <laughs> our, um, our friend and former colleague, David Pluff, um, who famously referred to the de- a lot of the Democratic Party as bedwetters in the New York Times. Um, possibly <laughs> that's, that's where all the Obama <laughs> people go to uh, attack people in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think presaging potentially the fall of traditional media by getting the New York Times to print the word bedwetting. Um, <laughs> but he yesterday... I think it was yesterday, tweeted um, a picture of a box of Depends. Um, it's a sign that, um, uh, that we were headed towards a long summer of this. Um, Which you know Pluff has had on his computer ready to copy-paste into a tweet for about like a month now. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed that he used it at this point. I felt like it's going to be much more necessary in a few weeks. Yeah, I know, um, I know. The, like, I am with you like this is the case there we could we made the case a little bit last week about why hillary is not the guaranteed winner but by far the probable winner but here is like in your you know it's your head in your heart right or your head in your gut i guess your head says look at the electoral and demographic advantage how could she lose and then i always think back to this i can't remember which late night comic it was who had this i think it was uh seth myers but at the um sort of the peak like right around the Iowa caucuses when Bernie Sanders was searching said, Hey, Hillary Clinton, we had you run against a black guy with a middle name, Hussein and a 70 year old socialist. We are trying to make it easy for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, maybe it's possible that, um, you know, this is going to end up being very close. The other thing I'd say, as we look at these polls is it's important to remember, like we think back to, um, the, like we like in our hinds in hindsight, it feels like Obama destroyed Mitt Romney, and he did elect uh, from the Electoral College. He he almost he also got only just a little bit north of fifty one percent, so it was like fifty one forty seven. So it's still a four point race. So if you're hoping to see polls that show Hillary up eight, nine, ten points, that's just not going to happen. Um, right. Well, at least so not now. We, I mean, look. So uh, 
to, to make everyone feel better, you know, at the end of the 08 primary, um, as it was wrapping up and Hillary was still in it, um, 40% of Clinton voters said that they would not back Barack Obama in November. That did not come close to happening, right? So I also think, as you look at the national polls right now and Hillary's numbers, um, baked into those numbers is the is what things would look like if you know most of a good chunk, maybe even half of the of the Bernie voters decided not to back her in November. Which so it comes down to you know obviously there's going to be some Bernie voters that don't that decide, you know, they're Bernie or bust and they decide not to support Clinton. But do you really think that's going to be most of his supporters? Um, history says no. Um, and, you know, Bernie's pre- previous comments say no. And, you know, when you talk to a lot of uh, Sanders supporters, they say no. But that that seems to be the question. You know, I think I think that's right. And that's the hopeful case. You know, I think about a lot of sort of online anger and concern has been directed at versus Kim Penner Jeff Weaver. Um, yeah as being sort of leading the charge against this. And what I thought was like some of the greatest shade thrown in modern recent journalism, he, he's described in the New York Times as campaign manager Bernie, campaign manager, Bernie Sanders campaign manager Jeff Weaver, who most recently owned a comic book store. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is A, true, B, I think diminishing like a long career in politics before that. But yeah. you know, I thought that pretty, pretty clever to get that past the editor. Um, but I also try to put myself in the shoes of the Sanders supporter, Sanders, Sanders staff at least. Mm-hmm. And losing is hard. Like they have lost, but in lo- losing is hard. And you go through these phases and campaigns are hard and you have to really convince yourself in order to make the gigantic sacrifice in your personal life, not sleep for, you know, these staffers have not slept or had a vacation day in well over a year. Um, And you have to make yourself hate the other person, the other candidate in a way. And like I was, even though we were winning in 08 at this point, speaking of the Kentucky primary, we convinced ourselves to hate Hillary Clinton. Like oh, with yes. a passion, passion, with an absolute passion. And I would say it took me about eight months after the eight to eight to 12 months after the election to get over that. Mm-hmm. And like this is an example of how much how absurd your hatred is. Um, during the um, sort of a famous I don't know if it's ever before told story from the Obama campaign is in the run up to the Kentucky primary in 08, um, which also around the time of the Kentucky Derby. Um in that derby was a horse called Eight Bells, which I think was the first filly to ever <laughs> run. Here we go. <laughs> I remember this. I think this. we all swear we'd never tell this story, but I will use no actual names okay. to save everyone. Good. But uh, And Hillary Clinton started in a very tortured um, set of rhetoric, started comparing herself to Eight Bells as because this would be the first filly to run, first woman president. And separate and apart from that very terrible political discussion in the office because we're in the office all day long on a Saturday. We have a Kentucky Derby pool. So everyone gets to pick a horse, put a a little money in and see who wins. And a campaign staffer who will not be named, who then went on to work in the White House with us, actually picked eight bells in the pool. I was therefore picking Hillary Clinton's favorite horse. And I was legitimately pissed at that person. Like, I was like, you are a fucking traitor. Like, I can't trust you. How could you do that? And it took me a, like, I was so mad. Didn't 8 Bell, like, then, like, lose on the track and had to be 
like put like put down or something like that yeah, yeah, yeah a horrible it, ending. the metaphor ended up being terrible for everyone involved and it was it's really a sad story <laughs> but like here's someone who just picks a horse that hillary clinton once supported and i was like you're a fucking traitor stay away from me and it took me like a day to get over it and that's the level of like hey don't you remember of- when when nira tandon who was hillary's policy director uh joined the campaign um, and she had, and she like first walked into the, to the office. We were, we started jokingly, uh, saying, meet me in Ohio, <laughs> <to Nira>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which like, she didn't appreciate at first. And then realized that we were all just joke about everything. And then we all became great friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but like you, the point is it's hard when you, especially if you think you're going to win, like if you sniff the white house and you picture yourself like in the West wing, like losing is hard. And I think it's, they're going to go through. I think Sanders himself is going to go through um, uh, like ups and downs here. And like and you can sort of see when you're losing, like the depressing nature of going back to the Senate. Right. You're not doing 10,000 person rallies. I remember Mm -hmm. in 2005, I was working in the Senate and it was like it was like February of 2005. And I'm in the, the salad bar line in the Senate cafeteria. And I hear this very familiar voice behind me. And I turn around and it's John Kerry. I was just like, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> like, yeah. You were a football stadium away from being president and now you're getting wilted cucumbers with me. It took, it took poor John Kerry a while. No, but yeah. he, here's what's different in my mind. In 08, as Hillary is fighting it out to the end against Barack Obama and people are saying, don't do this, you're going to hurt the party, blah, blah, blah. You know, the person that we would have ended up with if she continued to hurt Barack Obama and took all the Pumas with her and said, you know, don't, I'm not endorsing Barack Obama, don't vote for him, was John McCain, right? Who we all convinced ourselves was, you know, at that point he hadn't picked Palin. <laughs> so we yeah. all, like, it's it's John McCain. He's the maverick. It's too Republican, too whatever. Fine. Bernie has to right now be looking at Donald Trump, who is the antithesis of literally everything Bernie San- Sanders has stood for and fought for his entire life. And at some point, he has got to think to himself, this is going to be a choice between Hillary Clinton, who I do not like right now, and Donald Trump, who is incredibly dangerous to this country, like a threat to our democracy. And how do you look at that and say, no, I'm going to actually, it's okay if I harm her from now until June. I'm not going to do that much damage. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's, maybe the damage is going to go away and everyone's going to come together and it's going to be fine. And we're going to be in, in September, we're going to be like laughing at this conversation. But how do you know that you can't, you can't predict that right now. And is it worth the risk? I mean, it's, it's a big risk and and because the stakes, because the stakes feel so high. Um, and it is incumbent upon Sanders, I think. Like, as you know, said, he should stay in the race. He should campaign hard. Yes, of course. But you have to build a ramp to your supporters to come down from where they are to get to Hillary. And Hillary, to her credit, and she wasn't perfect. Like, you know, we you saw the same thing from Hillary where one day she's being, you know, not attacking Obama. This is in 08, not attacking Obama you know, seeming like talking about the importance of winning the election. And then the next, you know, if a week later, she's suggesting she's staying in the race because Obama might get killed, like all kinds of things happen. And so it's worth, re- I think it's always worth remembering that as nasty and bitter as this is, we're not at 08 levels yet, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's problematic that Hillary has spent the last, you know, she was been campaigning in Kentucky nonstop for like the last week um instead of focusing on the general election and that has costs and 
if Sanders gets out, campaigns and gets out in June 14th and endorses her shortly after that, all's fine and good. I think everyone will get over it. It'll be fine. If he stays into the convention, does not ask his delegates to support her, um, I think you it's a problem. And if she loses the the a clean shot at the convention for just like good unadulterated messaging opportunity about her platform and you know and the kind of president she would be, that's a huge that is a, that's real damage. And if he fight it over, this is the important thing to remember. If you, according to this New York Times article, the big reason the San, that Sanders is staying in this race to fight away the convention is not to push for new policies that lead to to deal with income inequality or a fifteen dollar minimum wage. It is to reform the Democratic nominating process, right? Which for more open primaries, which I am for. I'm for more open primaries. Yeah, I'm for fewer caucuses, um, which is actually what has helped Sanders. Like that's all well and good, and we should do that. But it's really not worth risking uh, the Democratic, the, risking the future of our democracy to fight for open primaries in fifty states. Six applications for protest permits. Uh, at the Philadelphia convention have now been taken out by Bernie Sanders supporters groups. One of them called Bernie or bust. This is reported in the wall street journal this morning. Yeah. I mean, there were Pumas, there were Pumas protesting, um, us in, uh, Denver in 08. That's right. But, and they were, and the good thing is they were silenced because, or they didn't matter as much because Hillary Clinton stood there with the New York delegation and said, I, I proudly support Barack Obama for president and gave one of the best speeches of her life. Uh, to help nominate him, you know, I mean, she she did a lot of good work back then, and even even those of us who were like rolling our eyes and still not liking her when she gave that speech and she did that at the convention, I remember we thought, okay, she she cares about this, you know, um, and I just I feel like at his core, Bernie Sanders is there, but like you said, I think like passions have gotten the better of him right now, and he just he's playing with fire. I think he's playing with fire. Um, and that fire is Donald Trump. And that fire is Donald Trump, which which we shall turn to now, our friend Donald Trump. So um, we want to we're going to talk about Trump's week with uh, the press. He's now he's now um, figuring out how to deal with the press uh, on a, in a general election, and uh, and so far with mixed results. <laughs> um, <laughs> should we talk about the New York Times story? Absolutely. So there's a New York Times story on uh, I think it was front page, right? Oh yeah, on Sunday, front page on Sunday. Um, not that, not that we ever read an actual newspaper I know, anymore. I have not, but have it not, seemed probably displayed on my iPad. I hear there. I hear they they arrive on people's doorstep somewhere. Um, <laughs> so, so above the fold, it's about Donald Trump's treatment of women, and it was very damning. There were probably there's I mean there would be enough for a whole bunch of different sexual harassment lawsuits in there, um, and somehow Trump turned this. Uh, as he often does, into an attack on the New York Times itself. And by the end of the week, uh, and one of the one of the women that was quoted in the story, this is a woman who, when she was uh, in her early 20s, Donald Trump took up to a bedroom in his house, told her to put on a bikini. She did. He marveled at how beautiful she looked and then introduced her as a Trump girl to everyone at the pool party. So just, you know, your standard stuff. Um, <laughs> and this girl said, oh, I, I, I was, she went on Fox and said, I was, I was misquoted. She didn't actually um, provide any evidence for how she was misquoted. She didn't say at all how she was misquoted, but she said that. Fox sort of ran the story, and Fox is now 
back on the side of Donald Trump. They have they're on the team. And so, you know, basically Fox's version is New York Times went too far on this story and it was a hit job on Donald Trump unfairly. Trump used that to tell his supporters the New York Times story has now been discredited. This woman came forward. And so now we're in a on one side or the other situation. Um, and I just wonder, is that that's going to be how this election goes now with Trump and the press? I absolutely. I think it's going to be cozy up to Roger Ailes and Fox News. I mean, as you point out, he had his uh, detente with Megyn Kelly. Um, Which, just, I mean, <laughs> he had his detente with Megyn Kelly and then people criticized the interview. And then Megyn Kelly went on TV and um, attacked the critics of the interview which was sort of, to me, like the last vestige of the whatever sort of anti-Trump or critical of Trump forces within Fox News there were at one point, they are now gone. Fox is now going to treat Donald Trump just like they've treated every other Republican, and they will be advocates for him from now until the election. And I think that's, that's probably know, a bigger endorsement than any Republican politician that has endorsed Trump. At, at, no question, because Republican voters love Fox. And they and don't they generally love Republican politicians, yeah. <laughs> Which is why Donald Trump is our nominee. Um, the, um, I think, you know, there's a big debate about um, this story on Twitter, among, you know, in political media Twitter about, you know, is Donald Trump making this terrible error by tweeting at this story a thousand times and drawing more um, eyeballs to it? And then you had a bunch of New York Times reporters sort of pounding their chests, being like, look how much traffic he gave us. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, because everything has to be covered like um, like has to be covered like like the game of politics and not the actual fact that, you know, there's a chance that a man with a 40 year history of misogyny might become president of the United States. We had to debate you know, we had a debate over whether Trump strategy worked. Um, <laughs> And it traveled so, so far, so fast by the end of the week. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, like this. This tells me a couple things. One, it's another example of the fact that these like in the age of Twitter, these quote unquote scandals or hit job stories or whatever else burn really bright, but they burn fast. Right. Like we're on to something else within a few days mm -hmm. Two, like, as you point out, this is going to be Trump's strategy. So he's just going to discredit the press in the most personal way. Like he went after the individual reporter who wrote the story, probably increasing um, that guy's Twitter follower account by a lot. Um, not that those are followers he's going to want to have, but, um, and then I think from a strategic perspective to devolve into what we hate, we'll talk about the strategy of it, but I, the old theory would be, you know, stick your head, you know, story runs, try to change a subject, move on to something else and um, try not to get it more attention. I, I think Trump's strategy is probably the right one, which is just, you know, right or wrong, but respond aggressively and forcefully and repeatedly as possible in order to um, put more shape the content that goes into people's social media feeds about the story as opposed to just the story itself. Um, you know, I think. Yeah, I, well, I mean, whether... I think I think he's. He's transitioning, right? In the primary, uh, the enemy, the primary enemy was, uh, you know, Muslims and Mexican rapists and uh, and all all of those people. And in general, he knows that the one way he can unite sort of uh, the conservative right wing media political machine is to make enemies uh, the media, particularly something like the New York Times and Hillary Clinton 
and any other parts of the establishment. Maybe not maybe not singling out the Republican establishment anymore because he knows he needs them. But uh, you you know if you are on the Republican ticket and you're running for president, you really can't go wrong attacking the liberal media media bias of the New York Times, and he knows that. The New York Times has a long history, uh, a long long and recent history of writing stories that end up benefiting Republican politicians uh, when that was their opposite attempt. I mean, they wrote several stories about Marco Rubio that were on their face so ridiculous that they probably helped Rubio in the primary. Mm-hmm. Um, like this is like the like in the part of what has driven Trump into a certain extent Sanders Sanders is this hatred, anger at institutions. Yeah. And the media is one of those institutions that people really don't like. And so trusted, sure trusted that... less than Congress. <laughs> yes. Which like, a, what is Congress? That's a feat. What is Congress? Yeah, that is really impressive. Um, and so he's going to play that card. I don't think it's going to hurt him. And he has all the leverage in this conversation because he drives traffic and ratings in ways in which uh, it's been, it, in a way in which it's been a long time since media outlets have seen. So he will kick the crap out of them and then have, and then they will have him on every time he wants to be on. And I don't it, like, I'm not really sure how the media should respond. Cause it's, we should also note the other thing Trump did has done in recent weeks is re, the press has said, you know, traditionally presidential candidates release their tax returns. Will you release yours? He's basically like, no, no. <laughs> just no. And they're like, but we're the media and this is tradition. And they're like, no. And he's just no. Gives them, basically giving the proverbial middle finger. And because, you know, and, am- and Hillary Clinton can say release your tax returns every day and she can say it on the debate stage. And if she does that, then the media will do another round of you must release your tax returns. And he'll say, fuck off. And then because we don't cover, like you said, because we don't cover these stories for more than 24 hours, that's actually a long time now. Um, it'll go away the next day. He just doesn't, he doesn't have to respond. And it is, um, like, I think that this is actually the tax return thing is, you know, whether he attacks Michael Barber of the New York times or not is, you know, I don't think you should personally attack reporters, but that I don't know. I'm sure that has long-term consequences for how the press covers campaigns, but I think the tax return thing does because, the main reason people release their tax return, candidates release their tax returns, is I'm sure some of them think it's the morally right thing to do. Obama voluntarily did his in the Senate. Other people did that. Um, so it's good to do. But it's because the press wants it and they demand it and it's a tradition. And if you don't do it, they're going to beat the shit out of you. It's the same reason that the president has to do a press conference for you know every so, so often, um, even if he has nothing particular to say because the press gets pissed and they'll make you pay some price. Trump just does not believe the press can make him pay a price, so he's going to do what he wants to do. And he's sort of shining a light on the weakness of the media's the media's capacity to play the quote-unquote referee, a role it has traditionally had in these presidential campaigns for centuries now. Yes, that is because, and, and, that and, is because he is a populist demagogue, and that's what populist <laughs> demagogues do, right? Yeah. Like, they, they point out traditions and norms and institutions and they say why are we doing things like that why have we done things like that before does it really make sense to you populist mob that has supported me all up until now <laughs> yes. right like why why should i put out my tax returns who cares do you really care it's the it's the liberal media establishment that's telling me to do that no one else is telling me to do that i mean this is it's just ugh, it's ridiculous is there is there anything that you think the media can do to reassert themselves um 
in this race. Uh, let me also, before you answer that, let me make one caveat I think is important, which is I think the we have been critics of how the media has covered this race yeah. in a lot of ways. But I think <laughs> the one criticism that I don't think is fair is that the media has not given scrutiny to Trump. I think they have... Um, there have been like the New York Times story is a perfect example of it. Like there's been a lot of investigative re- reporting done on Trump, and there has been a number of interviewers, many of them, including our guest last week, Chuck Todd, Jake Tapper, and other and others from CNN, who have asked him tough questions. Yeah. Um, he hasn't answered them, but they've asked the questions. But having said all that, you know this is an idea that Trump is exploiting um, in a social media age. Is there any? media can do to respond so i think i think the media is hamstrung in a couple ways here um i do not think they their hands are tied by any ideological bias i think their problem is structurally for a long time now their bias is towards covering this as a horse race and as a game and talking about the politics of it like you and i are doing right now we are not we did not spend this segment talking about how in the new york times story he called women who worked for him fat and sexually harassed them and made them feel uncomfortable and said all kinds of awful things about women because in political media now is completely so every time someone like chuck or jake or megan kelly or whoever sits down with um donald trump and asks him really tough questions and and you know embarrasses him and holds his feet to the fire that's a little story but then immediately all of the pundits all the talking heads all the people who do political commentary start talking about is this shrewd politics what does this mean against the race against Hillary Clinton and so the oxygen in the media is mostly taken up by the horse race and who's winning and who's losing and therefore there's not a lot of space except in a New York Times investigative story that comes out on a Sunday um, to actually find out, to to have the facts really seep into the public's minds as they're making decisions. And so in a way, I think the whole structure of political media is going to prevent them from from really digging into all of these, you know, Donald Trump refusing to release his tax returns, Donald Trump saying horrible things about women, Donald Trump, you know, doing horrible things like all of this stuff is going to be secondary to just covering what it means for whether he can beat Hillary Clinton or not. Here would be my proposal to the media, and they're they're often very excited for my suggestions of how they should do their job. Take it's just as I am often excited. I was often excited in the White House for their suggestions on how I should do my job. Perfect. Um, but and this will not happen because for a lot of the reasons you just point out. But like one thing that like the Sunday show and morning show hosts could do is they could get together and say, we are all going to agree that the first two questions we are going to ask Donald Trump in every interview he does until he releases his tax returns is about the tax returns. Mm-hmm. Right. Like to like he that is the price they can like they he needs them not as much as they need him but they he does need them it, this is his machine for you know dominating the conversation and if every time he tried to call into the today show or be on meet the press or face a nation or whatever else he had to answer painful awkward questions about the tax returns then it, he would either be on tv less or release his tax returns and um, look we we should i i just want to bring this up the one time the a, like a bunch of media organizations sort of got together, whether they conspired or not, and 
you know, constantly trashed Donald Trump every single day and brought up all of his negatives every single day was in the state of Wisconsin when he was running a primary against Ted Cruz and Cruz destroyed him. And I think a big reason was because so many people listen to conservative media and conservative talk, conservative talk radio, and it really had an effect on Donald Trump's numbers. So the idea that like this couldn't happen, that we just can't put a dent in his numbers, that we can't stop Donald Trump, it happened in Wisconsin. You know, so like I think you're right. If if they did that every single day, it would hurt his approval ratings. Yeah, and it's just like let's try to make him do it. I would. The thing that's funny is like the like there's only one answer to the question of why Donald Trump won't release his tax returns, and it's not that he took like and you hear this from a lot of people thinking uh, a lot of Democratic surrogates. <laughs> well, it's because he paid a very low tax rate, and he's going to be embarrassed he did that. Yeah, he no, doesn't give a not. shit about that. Like, he does not care. What he would say to that is. I use the rules to help Trump enterprises or industries, what the fuck it's called, Trump inter- industries win, and I will now use the rules to help America win. Like, right. and he will suffer no pain for that. The reason he releases tax returns is he's not that rich. So I, like I thought that too the whole time until the he released the personal financial disclosure report. Isn't that is that bound by law because it says that he's worth a billion dollars? But I guess could he just be lying? I mean, it is bound by law. Like you, you, it's, I think it's like perjury or something if you lie on it. Um, he, but it also has gigantic ranges. Oh. And so to really know what he's worth, you'd have to see the tax returns. And that's why he doesn't want to do it. Um, yeah. It's certainly not because he paid like it. He would, he would stand up and pound his chest that he tricked the stupid federal government into allowing him to pay 3% tax rate or something like that. Like right. he would, that would be a point of pride to him. Like his source of his power, is you know it's like samson's hair right like it's yeah. it's it's he's it's rich, rich. He's rich and it's and the successful. answer to all of the questions of like yeah but i mean he built a great business like he didn't build a great business he sold like terrible steaks and mattresses and had a reality tv show like he's not he's not an uh, excellent businessman he is an excellent yeah. branding marketer yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what he's right. that's what he excels at it's not a building a business it's branding himself and marketing himself and he's very very good yeah. at that one last thing one just one last point on the media i think a lot of people in the press and the media would say it is not our job to sink donald trump or to make sure that hillary clinton is elected president and they are correct about that it's not their job but there is a self-interest here i mean obviously trump gets them great ratings and great clicks right but Trump has also threatened the media now multiple times. Members of the press said that he's going to open up libel laws to, uh, you know, sue people easier. You know, and it's like, God, we, we've heard a lot of people complain about, you know, Obama and the Justice Department on whistleblowers. And, you know, this is about people who are leaking national security information. Can you imagine President Trump, what he would do to the press when they started publishing bad stories with the power of the Justice Department and all the other power at his disposal, what he would do to the media? I mean, I think that that has to go through their mind as they're dealing with this candidate. I mean, this one of the greatest false equivalencies to this election is that Trump and Hillary both hate the media. Like the press went insane because Hillary Clinton's staff made the press stand behind a handheld rope for a while in New Hampshire. Yeah. Which, sure, that probably wasn't awesome. And the, you know, I like, let's compare that to the fact that if you write a bad story about Trump, you are no longer allowed to cover him. Right. You will <laughs> there be is a blacklist. blacklist. Yeah, there is a blacklist right. now that he has an actual list of media outlets. And like, why don't we hear about that every day? Right. The, it is, like, you know, we could make an argument and we will make the argument that 
you know, Trump, a Trump presidency potentially poses a real danger to the tr the way the way in which the press operates in this country um, for centuries now. And maybe it's that the media doesn't believe what Trump says, or some of the media don't believe what Trump says the same way some voters don't. Well, he's not actually going to build the wall. He's not actually going to ban Muslims or talk to Kim Jong-un, put us all in Guantanamo Bay for uh, for what we write. But I think we're going to, this is something to watch very carefully because Trump's rise has been fueled by the media and how, and his interactions with the media I and how the media responds to him is going to have a real impact on this election going forward. Yes, I think that's correct. Also, this concludes our teaser on Channel 33. If you guys would like to hear the rest of our show, including how we beat Hillary in an election and our interview with SE Cup, please subscribe to Keeping It 1600 on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode of Keeping It 1600 is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. Other sites have gone back to the same old tactic of showing you a lower price and then changing huge fees at checkout. But at SeatGeek, the price you see is always the price you pay. With SeatGeek, there's no guesswork. You'll know exactly how much you're paying, where you're sitting, and whether or not you're getting a good deal, all right from your phone. So drop your old site and experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be. To start using SeatGeek, download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. And guys, this is the last time you're going to hear our show on Channel 33, so please make sure to subscribe to our new podcast feed titled Keeping It 1600 on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. So that's our own feed now. Welcome to Keeping It 1600. This is John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Welcome, everyone. We are... Uh, we are back with another week. We had some uh, primary contests on Tuesday. The primary is still going, believe it or not. I forgot it was primary night, did you? Uh, yeah, I totally forgot about that as well. I mean, <laughs> I, I've had the Kentucky and Oregon primaries, you know, circling on my calendar for a year now, but I so surprised I missed it. I, I honestly thought Kentucky already went. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they did on the Republican side, right? Maybe that's why I thought that. They did. It's also because I think we, like the rest of the world, thought this was over um, three weeks ago. So I stopped paying attention to election night. Oh, awesome. Well, um, we are going to be talking to S.E. Cup, CNN commentator, conservative commentator, and columnist very soon. But um, let's go through the week in politics uh, really quickly. So on Tuesday, uh, Hillary eked out a win in Kentucky. Uh, Bernie won Oregon. And then sort of all hell has broken loose in the Democratic Party. <laughs> or <laughs> yes. has it? Or has it? What do you well, think? Well, I, I think... Um, it feels like it has. I'm not sure it actually has. Um, you know, the the couple of things that happened here that are worth noting is um, there was a, a Democratic convention in uh, in in Vegas where the there, there was a huge dispute between the Bernie supporters and the Clinton supporters. 
in the state party itself, uh, lots of chanting. There were apparently threats of violence towards the state party chair. California Senator Barbara Boxer, I believe, was actually on location and said she was feared for her safety. Um, a lot of people called Sanders to respond, to sort of quiet this down, tell a supporter, condemn his support's actions. He refused to and sort of poured more gas on the fire. Um, yeah. And then... Then Bernie Sanders had a rally in California. People started chanting, Bernie, you're bust. And he did not, I don't know, I guess people wanted him to shush them or something. Um, yeah. And kind of let that stand. And then there was an article in today's New York Times that went online yesterday that said um, that Bernie, the Sanders campaign, driven by Senator Sanders himself and his um, uh, campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, were going to push this thing through June 14th and all the way to the convention, and they were willing to quote, and this is in the headline, um, do some harm to Hillary Clinton to try to fight to the end, um, which has Democrats with the propensity for bedwetting to get very nervous very quickly. As polls are showing, I just have to take a moment for the polar coaster. This is going to be <laughs> a segment on each episode now. Um, as polls are tightening, seemingly. I mean, there was a Fox News poll yesterday that has... Uh, Trump 45, Clinton 42, um, and some of these national polls have been a little tight. I guess, I mean, my thing is, I, I just haven't seen a poll in a little while, a couple of weeks, that shows a healthy Clinton lead, as healthy as it was in April, uh, either in states or nationally. Um, that combined with... Now, I don't, I don't know that that has... I don't know that that's completely separate from all of this Bernie stuff. And sort of the damage that he's doing to her by, look, a couple of weeks ago, he was sort of, it seemed like he was going to stay in the race through June, through California or DC primary, which I, I've said he should, um, but sort of focus on his positive message and, and the changes that he wants to see in the party and the changes he wants to see policy wise. And I thought that he would probably stop hitting Hillary Clinton. It seemed like he would. And I don't know what happened to him over the last couple of weeks. But he sort of switched back to attacks that are probably as bad or as intense as we've seen the whole primary. I, I think it is alarming. And, you know, you take some of these polls. I'm, I'm alarmed. I'm going to say I'm alarmed. You're alarmed. You, 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 you will be in a constant state of alarm until this election is over. I'm and <laughs> I will also be alarmed. Like the yin and yang of this podcast is you'll be super alarmed and I'll be very alarmed and I'll try to calm you down. I which go is basically how we, how we did the last eight years of our life. I just um, want everyone to know I go back and forth like many times a day because I, like intellectually I tell myself and have told myself for a couple months now it's going to get close. People are going to freak out. You can't worry about it. It's fine. The fundamentals are strong in the words of John McCain. Um, <laughs> and then, but it's hard when you see the, the Bernie stuff plus the tightening polls, you think, okay, we, we got to get our shit together here. <laughs> our, um, our friend and former colleague, David Pluff, um, who famously referred to the de a lot of the Democratic Party as bedwetters in the New York Times. Um, possibly <laughs> that's, that's where all the Obama <laughs> people go to uh, attack people in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think presaging potentially the fall of traditional media by getting the New York Times to print the word bedwetting. Um, <laughs> but he yesterday... I think it was yesterday, tweeted um, a picture of a box of Depends. Um, it's a sign that, um, uh, that we were headed towards a long summer of this. Um, Which you know Pluff has had on his computer ready to copy-paste into a tweet for about like a month now. 
I'm a little disappointed that he used it at this point. I felt like it's going to be much more necessary in a few weeks. Yeah, I know, um, I know. The, like, I am with you. Like, this is the case. <clears throat> there, we, could, we made the case a little bit last week about why Hillary is not the guaranteed winner, but by far the probable winner. But here is like in your, you know, it's your head and your heart, right? Or your head and your gut, I guess. Your head says, look at the electoral and demographic advantage. How could she lose? And then I always think back to this. I can't remember which late night comic it was who had this, I think it was uh, Seth Meyers, but at the um, sort of the peak, like right around the Iowa caucuses when Bernie Sanders was searching, said, hey, Hillary Clinton, we had you run against a black guy with a middle name Hussein and a 70-year-old socialist. We are trying to make it easy for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, maybe it's possible that, um, you know, this is going to end up being very close. The other thing I'd say as we look at these polls is it's important to remember, like, we think back to um, the, like, we, like in, our hinds- in hindsight, it feels like Obama destroyed Mitt Romney. And he did, elect- from the Electoral College, he... He almost he also got only just a little bit north of fifty one percent, so it was like fifty one forty seven. So it's still a four point race. So if you're hoping to see polls that show Hillary up eight, nine, ten points, that's just not going to happen. Um, right. Well, at least so not now. We, I mean, look. So uh, to to make everyone feel better, you know, at the end of the 08 primary, um, as it was wrapping up and Hillary was still in it. Um, 40% of Clinton voters said that they would not back Barack Obama in November. That did not come close to happening, right? So I also think, as you look at the national polls right now and Hillary's numbers, um, baked into those numbers is the is what things would look like if you know most of a good chunk, maybe even half of the of the Bernie voters decided not to back her in November. Which so. It comes down to, you know, obviously there's going to be some Bernie voters that don't that decide, you know, they're Bernie or bust and they decide not to support Clinton. But do you really think that's going to be most of his supporters? Um, History says no. Um, And, you know, Bernie's previous comments say no. And, you know, when you talk to a lot of uh, Sanders supporters, they say no. But that that seems to be the question. You know, I think I think that's right. And that's the hopeful case. You know, I think about a lot of sort of online anger and concern has been directed at nurses, Kim Penner, Jeff Weaver, um, yeah. as being sort of leading the charge against this. And, and what I thought was like some of the greatest shade thrown in modern recent journalism he, he's described in the New York Times as campaign manager Bernie campaign manager, Bernie Sanders campaign manager Jeff Weaver, who most recently owned a comic book store. I saw that, <laughs> which is. A true, B I think diminishing like a long career in politics before that, but yeah. you know I thought that pretty pretty clever to get that past the editor. Um, <laughs> but I also try to put myself in the shoes of the Sanders supporter, Sanders Sanders staff at least. Mm-hmm. And losing is hard. Like they have lost, but in lo- losing is hard, and you go through these phases, and campaigns are hard, and you have to really convince yourself. In order to make the gigantic sacrifice in your personal life, not sleep for, you know, these staffers have not slept or had a vacation day in well over a year. Um, And you have to make yourself hate the other person, the other candidate in a way. And like I was, even though we were winning in 08 at this point, speaking of the Kentucky primary, we convinced ourselves to hate Hillary Clinton. Like oh, with yes. a passion, passion, with an absolute passion. And I would say it took me about eight months after the eight to eight to 12 months after the election to get over that. Mm-hmm. 
and like this is an example of how much how absurd your hatred is um during the um sort of a famous i don't know if it's ever before told story from the obama campaign is in the run-up to the kentucky primary in 08 um, which also around the time of the kentucky derby um in that derby was a horse called Eight Bells, which I think was the first filly to ever <laughs> run. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this. I think this. we all swear we never tell the story, but I will use no actual names okay. to save everyone. Good. But uh, and Hillary Clinton started in a very tortured um, set of rhetoric, sort of comparing herself to Eight Bells as because this would be the first filly to run, first woman president. And separate and apart from that very terrible political discussion in the office because we're in the office all day long on a Saturday. We have a Kentucky Derby pool. So everyone gets to pick a horse, put a, put a little money in and see who wins. And a campaign staffer who will not be named, who then went on to work in the White House with us, actually picked eight bells in the pool. I was therefore picking Hillary Clinton's favorite horse. And I was legitimately pissed at that person. Like, I was like, you are a fucking traitor. Like, I can't trust you. How could you do that? And it took me a, like, I was so mad. Didn't 8 Bell, Bell, like, then, like, lose on the track and had to be, like, put, like, put down or something like that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Horrible ending. The metaphor ended up being terrible for everyone involved. And it was really a sad story. (laughs) But, like, here's someone who just picks a horse that Hillary Clinton once supported. And I was like, you're a fucking traitor. Stay away from me. And it took me, like, a day to get over it. And that's the level of, like... Hey, don't sort you remember of, when when Neera Tandon, who was Hillary's policy director, uh, joined the campaign, um, and she had and she like first walked into the to the office. We were we started jokingly uh, saying, "Meet me in Ohio," <laughs> to <Yeah>. Neera, <laughs> yeah. which like, she didn't appreciate at first, and then realized that we were all just joke about everything, and then we all became great friends. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, but like you, the point is, it's hard when, you, especially if you think you're gonna win. Like if you sniff the white house and you picture yourself like in the west wing like losing is hard and i think it's they're going to go through i think sanders himself is going to go through um uh like ups and downs here and like and you can sort of see when you're losing like the depressing nature of going back to the senate right you're not doing ten thousand person rallies i remember Mm -hmm. in oh 2005 i was working in the senate and it was like it was like February of 2005, and I'm in the the salad bar line in the Senate cafeteria, and I hear this very familiar voice behind me, and I turn around and it's John Kerry. Right. And I was just like, "Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> like yeah. you were a football stadium away from being president, and now you're getting wilted cucumbers with me." It took, it took poor John Kerry a while. No, but yeah. he, here's what's different in my mind. In 08, as Hillary is fighting it out to the end against Barack Obama and people are saying, don't do this. You're going to hurt the party, blah, blah, blah. You know, the person that we would have ended up with if she continued to hurt Barack Obama and took all the Pumas with her and said, you know, don't, I'm not endorsing Barack Obama. Don't vote for him was John McCain, right? Who we all convinced ourselves was, you know, at that point he hadn't picked Palin. (laughs) So we all like, it's, it's John McCain. He's the maverick is too Republican to whatever. Fine. Bernie has to right now be looking at Donald Trump, who is the antithesis of literally everything Bernie Sanders has stood for and fought for his entire life. And at some point, he has got to think to himself, this is going to be a choice between Hillary Clinton, who I do not like right now, and Donald Trump, who is 
incredibly dangerous to this country, like a threat to our democracy. And how do you look at that and say, no, I'm going to actually, it's okay if I harm her from now until June. I'm not going to do that much damage. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's, maybe the damage is going to go away and everyone's going to come together and it's going to be fine. And we're going to be in, in September, we're going to be like laughing at this conversation. But how do you know that you can't, you can't predict that right now. And is it worth the risk? I mean, it's, it's a big risk and and because the stakes, because the stakes feel so high. Um, and it is incumbent upon Sanders, I think. And like, as you know, said, he should stay in the race. He should campaign hard. Yes, of course. But you have to build a ramp to your supporters to come down from where they are to get to Hillary. And Hillary, to her credit, and she wasn't perfect. Like, you know, we you saw the same thing from Hillary where one day she's being, you know, not attacking Obama. This is in 08, not attacking Obama you know, seeming like talking about the importance of winning the election. And then the next, you know, if a week later, she's suggesting she's staying in the race because Obama might get killed, like all kinds of things happen. And so it's worth, re- I think it's always worth remembering that as nasty and bitter as this is, we're not at 08 levels yet, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's problematic that Hillary has spent the last, you know, she was been campaigning in Kentucky nonstop for like the last week. Um, instead of focusing on the general election. And that has costs. And if Sanders gets out, campaigns and gets out in June 14th and endorses her shortly after that, all's fine and good. I think everyone will get over it. It'll be fine. If he stays into the convention, does not ask his delegates to support her, um, I think you it's a problem. And if she loses the the a clean shot at the convention for just like good, unadulterated messaging opportunity about her platform and you know and the kind of president she would be that's a huge that is a, that's real damage and if he fight it over this is the important thing to remember if you, according to this new york times article the big reason the San, that sanders is staying in this race to fight away the convention is not to push for new policies that lead to to deal with income inequality or a 15 dollars minimum wage it is to reform the democratic nominating process Right, which for more open primaries, which I am for. I'm for more open primaries. Yeah, I'm for fewer caucuses, um, which is actually what has helped Sanders. Like that's all well and good, and we should do that. But it's really not worth risking uh, the democratic, the, risking the future of our democracy to fight for open primaries in fifty states. Six applications for protest permits. Uh, at the Philadelphia convention have now been taken out by Bernie Sanders supporters groups. One of them called Bernie or bust. This is reported in the wall street journal this morning. Yeah. I mean, there were Pumas, there were Pumas protesting, um, us in, uh, Denver in 08. That's right. But, and they were, and the good thing is they were silenced because, or they didn't matter as much because Hillary Clinton stood there with the New York delegation and said, I, I proudly support Barack Obama for president and gave one of the best speeches of her life. Uh, to help nominate him, you know, I mean, she, she did a lot of good work back then. And even, even those of us who were like rolling our eyes and still not liking her when she gave that speech and she did that at the convention, I remember we thought, okay, she, she cares about this, you know? Um, and I just, I feel like at his core, Bernie Sanders is there, but like you said, I think like passions have gotten the better of him right now. And he just, he's playing with fire. I think he's playing with fire. Um, and that fire is Donald Trump. And that fire is Donald Trump, which which we shall turn to now, our friend Donald Trump. So um, 
we want to, we're going to talk about Trump's week with uh, the press. He's now, he's now um, figuring out how to deal with the press uh, on a, in a general election. And, uh, and so far with mixed results. <laughs> um, <laughs> should we talk about the New York Times story? Absolutely. So there's a New York Times story on, uh, I think it was front page, right? Oh, yeah. On Sunday? Front page on Sunday? Um, not, that, not that we ever read an actual newspaper I know, anymore, I have not, but have it not, seemed probably displayed on my iPad. I hear, they're, I hear they, they arrive on people's doorstep somewhere. Um, <laughs> so, above, so above the fold, it's about Donald Trump's treatment of women. And it was very damning. There were probably, there's, I mean, there would be enough for a whole bunch of different sexual harassment lawsuits in there. Um, and somehow Trump turned this, uh, as he often does into an attack on the New York times itself. And by the end of the week, uh, and one of the, one of the women that was quoted in the story, this is a woman who, when she was, uh, in her early twenties, Donald Trump took up to a bedroom in his house, told her to put on a bikini. She did. He marveled at how beautiful she looked and then introduced her as a Trump girl to everyone at the pool party. So just, you know, your standard stuff. Um, <laughs> And this girl said, oh, I, I, I was, she went on Fox and said, I was, I was misquoted. She didn't actually um, provide any evidence for how she was misquoted. She didn't say at all how she was misquoted, but she said that. Fox sort of ran the story and Fox is now uh, back on the side of Donald Trump. They have, they're on the team. And so, you know, basically Fox's version is New York Times went too far on this story and it was a hit job on Donald Trump unfairly. Trump used that to tell his supporters the New York Times story has now been discredited. This woman came forward. And so now we're in a on one side or the other situation. Um, and I just wonder, is that that's going to be how this election goes now with Trump and the press? I absolutely I think it's going to be cozy up to Roger Ailes and Fox News. I mean, as you point out, he had his uh, detente with Megyn Kelly, um, which I mean, <laughs> He had his detente with Megyn Kelly, and then people criticized the interview, and then Megyn Kelly went on TV and um, attacked the critics of the interview, which was sort of, to me, like the last vestige of the whatever sort of anti-Trump or critical of Trump forces within Fox News there were at one point, they are now gone. Fox is now going to treat Donald Trump just like they've treated every other Republican, and they will be advocates for him from now until the election. And I think that's that's you probably know, a bigger it, endorsement than any Republican politician that has endorsed Trump. At, at, no, no question, because Republican voters love Fox. And they and don't they generally love Republican politicians. Them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why Donald Trump is our nominee. Um, the um, I think, you know, there's a big debate about um, this story on Twitter, among, you know, in political media Twitter about you know, is Donald Trump making this terrible error by tweeting at this story a thousand times and drawing more um, eyeballs to it? And then you had a bunch of New York Times reporters sort of pounding their chests, being like, look how much traffic he gave us. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, because everything has to be covered like um, like has to be covered like like the game of politics and not the actual fact that. You know, there's a chance that a man with a 40 year history of misogyny might become president of the United States. We had to debate, you know, we had a debate over whether Trump strategy worked. Um, and it traveled so, so far, so fast by the end of the week. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, like this. This tells me a couple things. One, it's another example of the fact that these, like, in the age of Twitter, these quote unquote scandals or hit job stories or whatever else burn really bright, but they burn fast. 
right? Like we're on to something else within a few days. Mm -hmm. Two, like as you point out, this is going to be Trump's strategy. He's just going to discredit the press in the most personal way. Like he went after the individual reporter who wrote the story, probably increasing um, that guy's Twitter follower account by a lot. Um, not that those are followers he's going to want to have, but um, and then I think from a strategic perspective to devolve into what we hate, we'll talk about the strategy of it. But I, the old theory would be, you know, stick your head, you know, story runs, try to change a subject, move on to something else and um, try not to get it more attention. I, I think Trump's strategy is probably the right one, which is just, you know, right or wrong, but respond aggressively and forcefully and repeatedly as possible in order to um, put more shape the content that goes into people's social media feeds about the story as opposed to just the story itself. Um, you know, I think. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I whether... think I think he's he's transitioning right in the primary. Uh, the enemy, the primary enemy was, uh, you know, Muslims and Mexican rapists and uh, and all, all of those people. And in general, he knows that the one way he can unite sort of uh, the conservative right wing media political machine is to make enemies uh, the media, particularly something like the New York Times and Hillary Clinton and any other parts of the establishment maybe not maybe not singling out the republican establishment anymore because he knows he needs them but uh you you know if you are on the republican ticket and you're running for president you really can't go wrong attacking the liberal media media bias of the new york times and he knows that the new york times has a long history uh a long long and recent history of writing stories that end up benefiting Republican politicians uh, when that was their opposite attempt. I mean, they wrote several stories about Marco Rubio that were on their face so ridiculous that they probably helped Rubio in the primary. Mm -hmm. um, like this is like the like in the part of what has driven Trump into a certain extent Sanders Sanders is this hatred, anger at institutions. Yeah. And the media is one of those institutions that people really don't like. And so Trusted, I'm not sure trusted that, less than Congress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, like, a, what is Congress? That's a feat. What is Congress? Yeah, that is really impressive. Um, and so he's going to play that card. I don't think it's going to hurt him. And he has all the leverage in this conversation because he drives traffic and ratings in ways in which uh, it's been. It, in a way in which it's been a long time since media outlets have seen. So he will kick the crap out of them and then have, and then they will have him on every time he wants to be on. And I don't it, like, I'm not really sure how the media should respond. Cause it's, we should also note the other thing Trump did has done in recent weeks is the press has said, you know, traditionally presidential candidates release their tax returns. Will you release yours? He's basically like, no, no. <laughs> just no. And they're like, but we're the media and this is tradition. And they're like, no. And he's just, no, gives them, basically giving the proverbial middle finger. And because, you know, and, and Hillary Clinton can say, release your tax returns every day. And she can say it on the debate stage. And if she does that, then the media will do another round of you must release your tax returns. And he'll say, fuck off. And then because we don't cover, like you said, because we don't cover these stories for more than 24 hours, that's actually a long time now. Um, it'll go away the next day. He just doesn't, he doesn't have to respond. And it is, um, like, I think that this is actually the tax return thing is, you know, whether he attacks Michael Barber of the New York times or not is, you know, I don't think you should personally attack reporters, but 
that I don't know. I'm sure that has long term consequences for how the press covers campaigns. But I think the tax return thing does, because the main reason people release their tax return, candidates release their tax returns is I'm sure some of them think it's the morally right thing to do. Obama voluntarily did his in the Senate. Other people did that. Um, so that's good to do. But it's because the press wants it and they demand it. And it's a tradition. And if you don't do it, they're going to beat the shit out of you. It's the same reason that president has to do a press conference for you know every so, so often, um, even if he has nothing particular to say because the press gets pissed and they'll make you pay some price. Trump just does not believe the press can make him pay a price, so he's going to do what he wants to do. And he's sort of shining a light on the weakness of the media's, the media's capacity to play the quote-unquote referee, a role it has traditionally had in these presidential campaigns for centuries now. Yes, that is because and, and, that and, is because he is a populist demagogue, and that's what populist <laughs> demagogues do, right? Yeah. Like they they point out traditions and norms and institutions, and they say, "Why are we doing things like that? Why have we done things like that before? Does it really make sense to you, populist mob that has supported me all up until now? <laughs> yes. Right? Like why why should I put out my tax returns? Who cares? Do you really care? It's the it's the liberal media establishment that's telling me to do that. No one else is telling me to do that. I mean, this is it's just. Ugh, it's ridiculous. Is there is there anything that you think the media can do to reassert themselves um, in this race? Uh, let me also, before you answer that, let me make one caveat I think is important, which is I think the we have been critics of how the media has covered this race yeah. in a lot of ways. But I think <laughs> the one criticism that I don't think is fair is that the media has not given scrutiny to Trump. I think they have um, – there have been – like the New York Times story is a perfect example of it. Like there's been a lot of investigative re- reporting – done on Trump. And there has been a number of interviewers, many of them, including our guest last week, Chuck Todd, Jake Tapper, and other and others from CNN, who have asked him tough questions. Yeah. Um, he hasn't answered them, but they've asked the questions. But having said all that, you know, this is an idea that Trump is exploiting um, in a social media age. Is there anything it can do to respond so I think I think the media is hamstrung in a couple ways here. Um, I do not think they their hands are tied by any ideological bias. I think their problem is structurally for a long time now, their bias is towards covering this as a horse race and as a game and talking about the politics of it like you and I are doing right now. <laughs> we are not. We did not spend the segment talking about how in the New York Times story he called women who work for him fat and sexually harassed them and made them feel uncomfortable and said all kinds of awful things about women because in political media now is completely fo- so every time someone like Chuck or Jake or Megan Kelly or whoever sits down with um Donald Trump and asks him really tough questions and you know embarrasses him and holds his feet to the fire that's a little story but then immediately all of the pundits, all the talking heads, all the people who do political commentary start talking about, is this shrewd politics? What does this mean against the race against Hillary Clinton? And so the oxygen in the media is mostly taken up by the horse race and who's winning and who's losing. And therefore, there's not a lot of space except in a New York Times investigative story that comes out on a Sunday um, to actually find out to have to have the facts really seep into the public's minds as they're making decisions. And so in a way, I think the whole structure of political media is going to prevent them from from really digging into all of these, you know, uh, 
Donald Trump refusing to release his tax returns, Donald Trump saying horrible things about women, Donald Trump, you know, doing horrible things. Like all of this stuff is going to be secondary to just covering what it means for whether he can beat Hillary Clinton or not. Here would be my proposal to the media. And they, they're, they're often very excited for my suggestions of how Great. they should do their job. Take it's note. just as I am often excited. I was often excited in the White House for their suggestions on how I should do my job. Perfect. Um, but and this will not happen because for a lot of the reasons you just point out. But like one thing that like the Sunday show and morning show hosts could do is they could get together and say, we are all going to agree that the first two questions we are going to ask Donald Trump in every interview he does until he releases his tax returns is about the tax returns. Mm-hmm. Right. Like to like he that is the price they can like they, he needs them. Not as much as they need him, but they he does need them. It, this is his machine for, you know, dominating the conversation. And if every time he tried to call into the Today Show or be on Meet the Press or Face the Nation or whatever else, he had to answer painful, awkward questions about the tax returns, then it, he would either be on TV less or release his tax returns. Um, and look, we we should. I I just want to bring this up. The one time the a like a bunch of media organizations sort of got together, whether they conspired or not, and you know constantly trashed Donald Trump every single day and brought up all of his negatives every single day was in the state of Wisconsin when he was running a primary against Ted Cruz and Cruz destroyed him. And I think a big reason was because so many people listen to conservative media and conservative talk, conservative talk radio, and it really had an effect on Donald Trump's numbers. So the idea that like this couldn't happen, that we just can't put a dent in his numbers, that we can't stop Donald Trump, it happened in Wisconsin. You know, so like I think you're right. If if they did that every single day, it would hurt his approval ratings. Yeah, and it's just like let's try to make him do it. I would. The thing that's funny is like the like there's only one answer to the question of why Donald Trump won't release his tax returns. And it's not that he took like, and you hear this from a lot of people, I think uh, a lot of democratic surrogates. Well, it's because he paid a very low tax rate and he's going to be embarrassed. He did that. He doesn't give a shit about that. He does not care. What he would say to that is I use the rules to help Trump enterprises or industries, what the fuck it's called Trump industries win. And I will now use the rules to help America win. Like, right. and he will suffer no pain for that. The reason he releases tax returns is he's not that rich. So I, like I thought that too the whole time until the he released the personal financial disclosure report. Isn't that is that bound by law because it says that he's worth a billion dollars? But I guess could he just be lying? I mean, it is bound by law. Like you, you, it's I think it's like perjury or something if you lie on it. Um, he, but it also has gigantic ranges, oh. and so to really know what he's worth. You'd have to see the tax returns, and that's why he doesn't want to do it. Um, yeah. It's certainly not because he paid like it. He would he would stand up and pound his chest that he tricked the stupid federal government into allowing him to pay three percent tax rate or something like that. Like right. he would that would be a point of pride to him. Like his source of his power is, you know, it's like Samson's hair, right? Like it's yeah. it's it's he's it's rich, his rich. He's rich and, and it's successful. The answer to all the questions of like yeah but i mean he built a great business like he didn't build a great business he sold like terrible steaks and mattresses and had a reality tv show like he's not he's not an uh, excellent businessman he is an excellent yeah. branding marketer yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what he's right. that's what he excels at it's not a building a business it's branding himself and marketing himself and he's very very good yeah. at that one last thing one just one last point on the media i think a lot of people in the press and the media would say it is not our job 
to sink Donald Trump or to make sure that Hillary Clinton is elected president. And they are correct about that. It's not their job. But there is a self-interest here. I mean, obviously, Trump gets them great ratings and great clicks, right? But Trump has also threatened the media now multiple times. Members of the press said that he's going to open up libel laws to, uh, you know, sue people easier. You know, and it's like... God, we, we've heard a lot of people complain about, you know, Obama and the Justice Department on whistleblowers. And, you know, this is about people who are leaking national security information. Can you imagine President Trump, what he would do to the press when they started publishing bad stories with the power of the Justice Department and all the other power at his disposal, what he would do to the media? I mean, I think that that has to go through their mind as they're dealing with this candidate. I mean, this one of the greatest false equivalencies to this election is that Trump and Hillary both hate the media. Like the press went insane because Hillary Clinton's staff made the press stand behind a handheld rope for a while in New Hampshire. Yeah. Which, sure, that probably wasn't awesome. And the, you know, I like, let's compare that to the fact that if you write a bad story about Trump, you are no longer allowed to cover him. Right. You will <laughs> there be is a blacklist. blacklist. Yeah. There is a blacklist right. now that he has an actual list of media outlets. And like, why don't we hear about that every day? Right. The, it is, like, you know, we could make an argument and we will make the argument that, you know, Trump, a Trump president potentially poses a real danger to the tr the way the way in which the press operates in this country um, for centuries now. And maybe it's that the media doesn't believe what Trump says or some of the media don't believe what Trump says the same way some voters don't. Well, he's not actually going to build the wall. He's not actually going to ban Muslims or talk to Kim Jong-un, put us all in Guantanamo Bay for uh, – for what we write. But I think we're going to, this is something to watch very carefully because Trump's rise has been fueled by the media and how, and his interactions with the media I and how the media responds to him is going to have a real impact on this election going forward. Yes, I think that's correct. Also, this concludes our teaser on channel 33. If you guys would like to hear the rest of our show, including how we beat Hillary in an election and our interview with SE Cup, please subscribe to Keeping It 1600 on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts.